Hallelujah. So we are going to be starting a brand new series this week. I think it's going to take us approximately eight weeks to get through, and we're going through the book of First Peter. Today is First Peter part one. I've cleverly put the verses on here so I don't confuse people when I say we're, we're doing First Peter uh, part two, but it's actually still chapter one. This, it's parts, not chapters. But we're going to get about halfway through First Peter today. So if you guys are ready, let's go ahead and bow our heads as we come to the Word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that we have the opportunity to spend time in your Word, Father, that you inspired by the writers, by the Holy Spirit, so that we can learn from it today, that we can be instructed, that we can grow in you and in our faith. And Father, I pray this morning that our hearts are ready to receive the Word that you have for us, that it would produce fruit in our lives, that it would have the effect that you intend in our lives. So Father, speak to us this morning. Give me the words to speak, Father, Lord, that the preaching and teaching of your word would be effective to those who are hearing. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. How many of you guys know that Paul wrote most of the New Testament? But he didn't write all of the New Testament. Peter wrote this book. You can tell because it's called Peter. So Paul ministered primarily to the Gentiles. Peter ministered primarily to the Jews, even though this letter appears to be addressed to kind of a mix of both. It's addressing both, both Jews and Gentiles. And actually, you'll see that from both of them. Even though Paul was sent primarily to the Gentiles, it's obvious he had a heart for the Jews. And you see vice versa with Peter. And you'll also see, and something that I find amazing, although I really shouldn't because God's working. Anybody ever, ever see God move and you're like, I'm so amazed. And then you're like, why am I amazed? That's just God. That's normal. I should expect that. I shouldn't be amazed. But at any rate, we see the themes that Peter is preaching is the same stuff that Paul's preaching, which is pretty amazing because Paul's been preaching it for a few years before he ever heads to Jerusalem and talks to Peter and the rest of the council in Jerusalem. They're preaching the exact same stuff. You'll find that Paul says that when, when Jesus spoke to me and gave me his word, I didn't immediately go and consult with him. I just began preaching. And lo and behold, they're preaching the same things. How many of that's God? If it wasn't God, they wouldn't be able to preach the same thing. So the themes that we find in Peter are going to be the same themes that are going to be preached by Paul, which is because God is consistent, amen? He doesn't change. His, his word's not going to be one for one people and one for another. It's the same for all of us. And in this first letter, we're going to find that uh, we find that it was written probably in the mid-60s. Some people think about uh, uh, AD 64, and uh, the early church was, was starting to feel some persecution. How I many know that, that Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel to Judea and to Samaria and to all the ends of the earth? And they said, oh, he must mean just Jerusalem. So they all just stuck around. And finally, the persecution gets bad and they get scattered across the, uh, the, the country there. So they're no longer in Jerusalem, and it's likely that they're starting to wonder what's going on because they're, they're starting to get discouraged because they're being persecuted for their faith. They're being, they're being challenged at every step of the way. And actually, they're, the, I've read that about this time, they're probably getting ready to get an official notice, I think from Nero at the time, that's going to no longer recognize Christianity as a sect of Judaism. You'll remember that in the beginning, they all recognized Christianity as a sect of Judaism. They're finally going to, 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 to tear that apart. They're not going to be recognized as the same. 
And this time during this first century, Christians actually aren't being hunted down yet. They're, not, they're facing some persecution, but they're not being hunted down. They're not being killed quite yet by the Romans. But they're, they're, they're not getting killed in mass, but they're definitely starting to feel social and economic pressure from both the Romans, from the Jews, and even their own family. And they were all misunderstood. They were all harassed. And the truth is, some, even though it wasn't in mass, there were still some getting killed for their faith. They were giving up their lives. So we see a group of Christians who actually aren't playing it safe. How many know that if you want to live for God, sometimes you're not going to be able to play it safe. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face tough times. You're going to face things that are difficult. And that's what these Christians were doing. They were completely sold out for the gospel. They were giving up and sacrificing everything. And when you made this kind of leap back then, there was no place to turn. You got to remember, see, today's, in today's society, if somebody goes to church and things aren't working out, they can just get up and leave and go to another church. There's, there's no consequence for not fitting in. There's no consequence for not being obedient to the Lord. There's no, because you can always just go somewhere else. But think about it back then. They turned, they turned away from Judaism. They turned towards Christ. And if they decided that they wanted to do something else, they couldn't go back home. Essentially, they burned their bridges. The families were upset with them. The, 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 the Jewish community is not going to let them back in. And you think, man, that's crazy. How could that even be possible? But did you know that's exactly what happens to Muslims right now? That if Muslims turn towards Christianity, they're ostracized from their family. And matter of fact, many times their family attempt to kill them. Husbands that turn to Christianity have their wives attempting to kill them. Wives that turn have their husbands attempting to kill them. They're completely ostracized. When they make that leap, there's no going back. They are completely sold out. They don't have any place else to turn. And they made that leap. So this letter is about Paul giving, or Peter giving them some encouragement and telling them and teaching them how to react in these circumstances. Because just because things are going bad doesn't mean you don't need to live obediently. It doesn't mean you need to stop trusting in God. Matter of fact, that's when you need to, to double down on trusting in the Lord and begin to be obedient to His Word so that He can work in your life. And the truth is that even though suffering is to be expected, He wanted to remind them that it's temporary. Did you guys hear me? Suffering is to be expected. If you're a Christian, know that you're going to suffer in some things. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And he doesn't say, if you're persecuted. Jesus implies that you will be persecuted. To be a Christian means that you're going to face hardship. You're going to face persecution. But if we remain steadfast in these temporary circumstances, God is faithful. Amen? Amen. As I was going through this and studying this, I found a quote by a, a uh, uh, I think he was a pastor. He said, it's remarkable that Helen Keller, you guys know who Helen Keller is? Well, I just had to shut down some Helen Keller jokes right now. That was a close one. I'd have, I would have just burned a, bunch of, burned a bunch of women right now. Sorry. <laughs> Jan says, go for it. I can. It's recorded. I, this could come up later. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. But it was remarkable that Helen Keller once said that life is either a daring experience or nothing. So if you guys know who Helen Keller is, she's actually got an amazing story. She was an amazing woman, apparently a very, very difficult child, um, which is to be expected. She was deaf, she was blind, and she couldn't speak. 
I mean, we think that we have it rough sometimes now, but imagine not having most of your senses not working. I mean, I, I read a story about her once that, that uh, she was taught sign language by basically the teacher putting her hand inside of, of Helen Keller's hand and making the signs in her hand. That's how she learned how to know what the, the hand was supposed to look like. And, and apparently the, the lady that was teacher just had a rough time because she was so frustrated because she couldn't communicate that, that she was just a terrible child. <laughs> but she said when she grew older, she said that, that life is either a daring experience or nothing. And she, I mean, she knew better than anyone the special challenges that people face every day. Because she faced challenges that you and I will never face in our lifetime. And the truth is that those who take on a world without experiences in God's grace and peace are doomed to failure. A life that amounts to nothing. It's a perfect description of the Christian life. It's either a daring experience trusting God and living for Him, or it's nothing. It's worthless. You've accomplished nothing. You can live your whole life. If you don't know Jesus, then it was all for nothing. This first chapter that we're going to talk about today, that we'll get through, like I said, half of it is, is Peter's going to begin talking about how that we are born again and we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. You know, that should be the, the start of any time you're going through a struggle. Remember what you have. It's so easy to begin to point out the things that you don't have, the things that you're struggling with. Remember what you do have. You have a God who loves you, who made you brand new. He cleansed you of every failure, every, ever, every uh, disgusting thing that you've ever done, ever sin. He's cleansed you from all of it. And He's made you perfect. And He's given you an inheritance of eternal life. That means that, that you get an inheritance of the kingdom. You get to spend the rest of eternity with God. And then he'll continue on in this chapter reminding people to remain holy even in the midst of persecution. Because how many know it's pretty easy to, when things are rough, your first instinct is just to give up. Why am I even trying to resist? Why am I even going through this? Who cares? I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's, I mean, those are the thoughts that enter my head at any rate. I don't know if that's the same for everybody, but sometimes when things are get tough, you just want to quit. But that's why the scripture says that we take every thought captive. Just because those thoughts make their way in your head doesn't mean you let them run your life. Amen? So let's start in 1 Peter chapter 1. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> First Peter. The people are going to be so confused in this recording today because they can't see what's going on in here today. My wife just tried to kill somebody. If anybody's wondering. here, Oh, a kid. She tried to kill a kid. Hallelujah. First Peter 1, 1 through 2. Work with me, guys. We've got to get through this stuff. This is, how, this is how we have sermons that go two and a half hours because you guys distract me. Hallelujah. First Peter 1, 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, when you read this, the first time you read this, I bet you didn't know there is all kinds of stuff packed in these verses right here. You see, he's, he's talking to a group of people that he refers to as the exiles of the dispersion. Other translations refer to them, instead of uh, the dispersion, it refers to them as being scattered. 
Matter of fact, I think the, the, the translations that actually translate it to just scattered are missing out on something really important that Peter's trying to, to allude to. But they're scattered, and the, 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 the image that's being painted is they're scattered like salt. If you were to toss a salt shaker, the salt just goes everywhere. So it's not like all these people left as a big group and formed another group elsewhere. They were dispersed all over these different areas that he's talking about. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They're, 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 they've been spread apart from Jerusalem and spread across the country. And this word scattered, which, which the uh, English Standard Version translates to the dispersion, is the Greek word diasporis. And this word actually had a special meaning to the Jewish Christians in these churches. Because the diaspora referred to the Jews who were separated from their homeland. So Peter kind of takes this word, which used to refer to Jews who were separated from their homeland, and he adapts it to describe what's going on in the Christians. Because they've been scattered, they've been pushed out by persecution. And they use this word to describe the condition of the early church. And you'll see that actually a lot when, when you see that the, these, these preachers are speaking to the people, the apostles, they're, they're all Jewish men and women. They all understand the Jewish, what's going on in Jewish society and Jewish culture. So they begin to use these words to, to, to make sure that they have meaning in the lives of those who are hearing it. Other translations say instead of just to those who are, who are exiles, it says that those who are aliens. And I find that's a particularly interesting translation because do you guys know what it means to be an alien? It means to not be a part of the place that you're in. It doesn't mean men with little green, green ears and skin. It's talking about not fitting in where you're at. And the, I, the, the truth is, is not only is he talking about people that were dispersed from their, from their location, and now they're in different countries and different areas, geographical areas, but I also think he's making a point to say that as Christians, that we are aliens and sojourners in this land. We are not part of the world that we are in. John 15, 18-19 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you know that we're not of this world? We're actually aliens. Every Christian is an alien in this world. We don't belong. We're not, we're not part of the culture. As soon as you are born again, you are drawn into the kingdom of God, and you are no longer here. You're no longer part. We live here. But we're not part of this world. We're part of something greater. Amen? And then you're also going to know that he says that they are elect. Now you'll hear this, this terminology used in a bunch of different ways. Some people say that only a subset of people are elect. But I would argue that every single one of us have been elected or chosen by God. Every single one of us, God has handpicked to be part of his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I find it incredible that God picked me. Because I know me. I certainly know me better than you know me. And I wouldn't have picked me. But God still picked me. God still wanted me. God still chose me to be part of his kingdom. And then he goes on to say, he talks about this, uh, what we go through in the sanctification of the Spirit. Did you know that the Bible refers to sanctification in two different manners? One, there is yeah, you being sanctified immediately when you're born again. As soon as you're born again, you are made clean, you're sanctified, you're set apart. But it also talks about sanctification as an ongoing process. So what happens is when you're born again and you're spirit man, you're immediately sanctified, you're set apart, you're made clean, you're made righteous. 
But how many know that when somebody accepts Jesus Christ in their life, that, all, that their, their life doesn't automatically reflect Jesus in the way that it should? Because sometimes it takes a little while for our body to catch up to what has happened inside of us. When you're born again, a miracle takes place inside of you. You're made perfect, pure, clean, and holy. And sometimes the, 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 the body that you wear, your, your, meat, your meat tent, takes a little while to catch up with what's actually happened on the inside of you. <laughs> we, we do this by walking in obedience, though. We do this by, by having our mind renewed. If you want your, your outer, outer man to reflect what has happened on the inside of you, you need to spend time in your word. You need to spend time learning who you are. You need to walk in obedience to what God has for you. And what will happen is you will grow physically into what has already happened spiritually inside of you. And then he goes on and talks about uh, through the sanctification for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. I told you there's so much packed into this little tiny front section here. What he's talking about here for the sprinkling with his blood, it's, he's talking, if you guys remember in, in the Old Testament, sprinkling of the blood was the part of the atonement and the covenant between God and his people. All right, guys, sit down and stay put. Well, hold it. <laughs> See, sprinkling of the blood was part of the atonement and the covenant between God and his people. In Exodus 24, 8, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is an allusion to, to, to what was a, a type and shadow before is now a reality in Jesus Christ. We have been atoned by his blood. And finally, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Something you see uh, Paul doing all the time as well is he's, he's basically praying for the people that he's speaking to because he wants them to improve. He wants them to grow. He wants them to have grace and peace in their life. And truthfully, church, this is an attitude that not only should the, the apostles have or not only should just pastors have, but every single one of us should have this attitude in prayer for one another. Amen? And then in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, to be born again is to be made brand new change from what we were and it's an amazing experience an amazing process because we are born again into a life of hope when we look around us into the and see people on the street there's so many people who are walking around who have no hope they have no hope for their future they have no hope for what's going on inside of them and they feel lost and broken but we're born again into a living hope and it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this idea of being born is an interesting one. Why is this term used? Because the reality is, is, what, is when something is born, what, what's the end result of, of a birth? A baby. Did you say the end result of a birth is death? Wow, she just skipped the whole middle part of life. Hallelujah. The end result of a birth is a baby. And a baby doesn't have a past. A baby doesn't have any baggage. A baby doesn't have anything holding them back. Their life is completely in front of them and they have no history to tear them and pull them down. 
You see, when you're born again, you are put into the state that Adam was in. Adam was the only grown man that ever lived that didn't have a past, who didn't have baggage, who didn't have anything behind him. Everything was looking forward and towards his God. And when you're born again, you're put into that same state. Your past is dead with Jesus Christ, and you are a grown man or woman with no past, no history, no baggage. That is what God has done for you when you're born again. That's why the terminology is so powerful that you are born again. And this is actually where we get our name from, Living Hope Family Church, because we were born again into a living hope. Because our hope is in God Himself. And our hope that we have is secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love that it talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Because you don't sit down until the job is finished. What Jesus did was, did was complete. And by returning, by resurrecting, He proved that God was satisfied in the work that He had done. And then he talks about us having an inheritance that is imperishable. This word inheritance is actually the same word that is used uh, when they're speaking of the promised land of Israel. However, our inheritance, unlike a promised land, can never be destroyed, it can never be taken away, it can never be stolen, it can never be given to somebody else. Our inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. Paul says very similar things about inheritance. In Ephesians 1, 18-21, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places for above all rule and authority, power, dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. You know, if we could have our eyes truly open and understand what this inheritance means, have a, a revelation of what truly was accomplished by Jesus Christ inside of us, I think that we'd live our lives in a completely different way. Paul was concerned that Christians would take hold of their spiritual resources that are ours in Christ. I mean, that's the thing that we have is we don't actually truly understand what he accomplished inside of us. So many of us stop at, oh, we're forgiven. And we don't realize that we've been made brand new, that we are completely free from the bondage of sin and death, that sin has no power in our lives anymore, and that our inheritance is a life that is lived in obedience and set apart to God, and that's our inheritance, that we can actually have that, to, to be who God intended us to be, and then when we finally do pass on, we get to spend the rest of eternity in heaven with our God who gave everything for us. That is our inheritance and it can't be stolen away. The power God has for us is more than just the resurrection. It's the power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but it made Him the supreme authority in the universe. Jesus is the end-all, be-all to every question that you ever have, to every, every uh, point of contention of, of morality and, and all of those different things. He is on our side and His power is made available to us. He's the name above every other name. 
And we don't have to live in fear or in intimidation because we have access to the greatest power that has or ever will exist. It's ours in, his, in the inheritance. We have the ability to live like he lived because of him inside of us. Did you know that the United States is currently the greatest military power in the world? By far. You want to know who has the, the power to, to, to scare us or has the power to, to go ahead and, and, and intimidate us? There's really nobody. When it comes down to raw military might, there's nobody that, that can at this point in time, if we're not careful, there's some powers up and coming that might get there. But at this point in time, there's no country that could stand against us head to head. The power of the U.S. military is greater than any other military power that's ever existed in this earth. And not much scares the U.S. Now, if that's the greatest military power and it makes us where we don't have to be afraid of other countries invading or coming in, we have the power of God that, that eclipses that kind of power by so much. And not only that, the power that we have that supports us, that's inside of us, that God has given us, does not fail. It does not fall away. It doesn't fade. It's not like when you get born again, you're, you're filled up and you can do everything right, but as you're a Christian for a long enough time, you start running out of power. No, God's power doesn't fade. And His inheritance doesn't fade. He says that we are protected by His power, by who God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If we will remain in the faith, because how is it? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, that's important. You have to have your trust in Him for God to move in your life. That nothing can separate us. That power means that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It can separate us from our salvation or our inheritance. Amen? And he continues on in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through the... It is test, through, though perishes that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Forgive me when I mess up words. Sometimes my head moves so much faster than what I'm reading that I, I get stumbled. I get tongue-tied. I know it's, I'm the only one that ever happens to you, so hallelujah. <laughs> this is one of those verses. I think these verses are crazy. Anybody ever read this and think Peter's crazy? Am I the only one that reads this stuff? He says, look, rejoice your trials that seems like a dumb idea rejoice see but the problem is is we read it we read it wrong our our instinct is to read it rejoice for your trials now that would be dumb he says rejoice in your in your trials when you're going through a tough situation god's not telling you to say thank you father that my car is breaking down thank you father that school is just not he's not telling you that he's saying that in the midst of all these things rejoice because how many of you know that none of that stuff can take away that inheritance that he's that he was talking about a little while ago no matter how life your your how bad your life gets nothing can take that away from you it's all about perspective there's a story of a of a couple guys sam and jed and there was a company that came out and they said you know what we're going to pay $5,000 for every wolf that you capture alive. So Sam and Jed, they went out hunting. They're out in the woods. They're hunting. And, and after four or five days, they haven't caught a single wolf. And they go to bed. They're exhausted. They're tired. 
And finally, Sam wakes up and he looks around him and they're surrounded by wolves. Their eyes are glistening in the firelight. Their teeth are being bared. And they're surrounded, ready to get eaten. And Sam starts poking his buddy. Hey, Jed, wake up. We're rich. (laughs) It's all about perspective and the things that you're going through. See, the thing about trials... The thing about trials is they, as they test your faith, your faith grows. Sometimes, you, how many know that you've got to use a muscle for it to increase? If you don't use a muscle, your muscles atrophy. Faith is kind of like that. If you don't actually use your faith, it atrophies into nothing. But when you use it, much like a, a, a weightlifter will go ahead and continue to stress a muscle over and over and over again, so that way that it increases in strength and in volume and size, we have to do that to our faith. You see, God's not going to put you through tough situations. God's not the one that, that makes your life hard. How many know there's an enemy that wants to lie, kill, and destroy in your life? But God will use those situations to get you strong and be ready to go through what you're going through. He'll help you if you'll just put your trust in Him and begin. So that's why we rejoice in these things. We don't rejoice for them, but we can rejoice in them knowing that no matter what happens, that our, 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 our hope cannot be stolen away. If we continue to trust in Him, His power is what guards us. But in doing so, we get stronger and better equipped to handle what's coming our way. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably noticed that it seems like the stuff gets harder and harder, but you're, you're, you're just as much able to, to deal with what's happening in your life now, even though it might be a greater turmoil than what you could 10 years ago. That's because you've grown up. You've been strengthened. Your faith has been tested, and it's been proven And when that happens, your faith becomes more precious than gold. See, the the testing of your faith is what makes it genuine. You guys have heard the expression, faith untested is faith untrusted? You can say that you have all the faith in the world, but you don't know what it's really like until something tests that faith, until something gets really hard. You can say, I believe in God for healing. I trust Him. I have faith for healing. But that's not really tested until you go to the doctor and he says that you have terminal cancer. That's when your faith is tested. It's easy to say that you have faith for for finance. I believe God for provision in my life. But until you actually start giving when you don't know where the rent check is coming from, your faith's not really tested. But when our faith is tested, it grows, it's, it becomes valuable to us, more valuable than anything that we have. And because God is faithful, when you exercise your faith, He never lets you down. That's one thing that I can say for certain in my life. I have, I have placed faith in God during some crazy situations, but I have never been let down, not even once. And David said, I am old, but uh, I was once young, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Hallelujah. And I like that it says that when we do exercise it, it results in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know why? When you, when you exercise your faith, you begin to see Jesus in your life. You begin to see Him moving in your life. You begin to see His power in your life. And, and when, we, when we test our faith, it's not for the trials we're going through, but it's the, the result of God working in our life, knowing that our hope can't be stolen away, and knowing that the end result is Him never leaving, forsaking us, and walking with us. We come out the other side and we rejoice because we see Jesus in everything that we do. And verses 8-9, through nine, He says that though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe. 
believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the outcome of our, our faith in trials is that we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, it's, the thing about Jesus is, is our, our relationship with him is not because we see him. At least not his, person, his personal body. That's not something that we see today. Now I know there are stories of Muslims who see him in dreams. And, and the truth is, is that our, our, uh, we see him, and the aftermath is, the ba- is, is a bad word, but we see the results of him moving in our lives. But I can say that I've honestly never seen the body of the person of Jesus. He's never stood in front of me face to face in a physical form. Just like I've never heard the audible voice of God. I know there are people that have. I know there are people that have seen Jesus, but I haven't. But I still have a relationship with Him still. Even though I've never physically seen Him, I still believe in Him. Even though I don't see Him right now, I still believe in Him. That's what He says. Even though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with that joy. Because our relationship with Jesus Christ is not based on the physical sight of him but that spiritual relationship that we have with him the understanding of him moving in our life we know what the word teaches about him if you don't know jesus very well i would argue it's probably because you don't spend very much time in your word to know who he is and like i said even though most of us have not seen him physically we have seen him by the results of him in our life around us just like we can't see the wind but we know it's blowing when the 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 leaves are rattling and the the tree branches are bending we can't see the wind but we know it's there because the result of what it is doing and we see that jesus by what he has accomplished in our lives and what he's accomplished in those around us and this this faith that we have results in the salvation of our souls i mean that's a good thing we need salvation and when we put our trust in him we receive with great joy salvation this inheritance that can never be stolen or taken away see the reality is is that god isn't going to give you a pass because you're a great person and he doesn't actually send people to hell because they're bad people It's because they haven't put their trust in Him and what He has accomplished. It's faith and faith alone. Then in 1 Peter 1, 10-11, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Did you know that the the, the writers of the Old Testament, those who prophesied, they were looking for the very salvation that's been given freely to each and every one of us. Jesus was never plan B. Jesus was always plan, B, plan A. Even in the time of the temple, even in the time of sacrifice, they were still looking forward to the Messiah. They were looking forward to Jesus. They were looking forward to the very salvation that we can take up freely right now. It wasn't yet made available to them. And they prophesied under the power of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. And then they searched those writings looking for when the Messiah would come and when He would suffer because they wanted to know when He would be here. Did you know that we have an advantage that they did not? 
Have you never had anybody ever tell you like, oh man, if, if I was just alive when Jesus was walking the earth, I would have so much more faith. I would really believe then if I could see it with my own eyes. I know that's not true because so many people didn't. <laughs> but the truth is we have an advantage right now. We know the rest of the story. We know what happened. We know what he accomplished. We know what the outcome was. We've seen his faithfulness time and time again throughout history. We've seen lives that are completely changed and turned around. We have an advantage that they never had because Jesus Christ the Messiah has already come and he already gave his life for ours. And we have the grace that they prophesied about. That's amazing to me. And then in verse 12, which is where we're going to end up today, it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, the, the prophecies. That they were, they were writing down, that God was giving them, they were writing down, they found out that those prophecies actually weren't for them, but they were for us. They were for the time from the early church on. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, the early church, and every Christian since then. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We have the opportunity now because it's already happened, to hear the gospel preached, to have a greater revelation of who God is and what His will is for our lives. Everything in the Old Testament was always just a type and shadow of what was to come in the personhood of Jesus Christ, who by His one and only sacrifice has made every single one of us clean and pure and forgiven and set apart for Him. You know, what God did was so amazing that even the angels wanted to know about it. He says that he preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit and sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. You see, they're astonished at the plan of salvation because they don't have the same uh, ability to receive it like we do. They're astonished by the love and adoration that God has towards humans. I don't know how they feel about it. I don't know if they're upset or what it is, but they certainly look with keen interest into what is happening in our lives and to what God is doing for us. And if the angels are interested in it, we should be even more interested in it, amen? Because it is for us. And we're blessed to have those very things, the salvation, the grace, what was prophesied. We are so blessed to have those things. Church, I want to encourage you as we finish up today. The stuff that the prophets were looking forward to that they never had. Matter of fact, you can read in Hebrews in the, in the, the, the faith chapters. Uh, I forget exactly which one it is, but Google Hebrew faith chapters. You'll find it in a second. But it says that, that uh, they all died in the faith looking forward to a promise that hadn't been given to them yet. They were looking forward to a pro- We have that promise now. We don't have to look forward. So church, I want to encourage you. Let's not be a people that takes this for granted. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.